Welcome to On to Mocks with FP Wellman on Colin. If you're listening to us on the web, I hope you'll download the Colin app. Join us live to talk about our democracy, how we can all help move the nation forward. It's free to download and subscribe. You know, I guess the best part, all of our shows publish on Apple and Spotify as well. So I hope you'll join us wherever you get your podcast fix. Let's get the show rolling. Always get a little music to start us off on the right track. show this is on democracy with fp wellman i'm glad to have you here on Colin and everywhere you get your podcast now it's great to be back i, I took a little break for the for july 4th week holiday I, I didn't actually take a holiday but i did take a break for a bit i laid on my butt worked around the house it was a very good week uh you know but it was good because a little bit of a quiet week for a minute there but but things came roaring back this week to make up for it all you know yesterday's january 6th hearing was another stem winder with a host of revelations both new and, clarif- and clarifying for us you know, and a fascinating appearance by uh, one of the participants in the attack and the former spokesman for the Oath Keepers on the threat they represent, which is, so it was really interesting. And, and it gets the larger story. This is the seventh January 6th hearing. Uh, it, it gets, it, it, it just gets more interesting each time. I, I haven't been disappointed yet as far as their ability to paint the picture of what happened. Uh, and there's more to come. Um, so I really am excited about having my guest today. And, I, and, 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 and not just because of January 6th stuff. Uh, my guest is has been very active in, 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 in progressive politics. We've come across each other a number of times in the work we do, the mutual work we do, and I was just so excited to have him on and talk about things. You know, one of my big things that I do in my work from the Lincoln Project and, and from my candidate work now is, you know, the messaging that goes into uh, how do we speak to our fellow Americans, how do we convince them of who we are and bring them to our side. So let's get right to it. I, I've had, as I mentioned, I've had the opportunity to get to know Billy Ray this year. Through our mutual work at Axie Circles and, and work with great Democratic candidates, uh, Billy has a remarkable resume. I tell you, as a writer, director, and producer, from the best movies and television shows, you know, from the adaptations and scripts for The Hunger Games to Captain Phillips, one of my favorites, by the way, and The Comey Rule, most recently, <coughs> to direction of Shattered Glass and other productions. His current efforts writing a film by January 6th, he's proven his chops understanding American politics and our democracy. And then, as I mentioned, in between his work, he's a fierce pro-democracy advocate and is assisting Democratic candidates in their messaging and storytelling. Billy, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Really appreciate your time, and thanks for joining me, man. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's great. So, you know, let's let's talk about that up front. I mean, you're a storyteller for a living. I mean, and, uh, and you know, just as I'm a storyteller for a living, you know, we are facing, you know, every prediction is that the mid, it, it, it depends on the day, right? The earlier predictions that midterms are going to be a disaster for the Democrats, that Republicans are coming on strong. But uh, on the second hand, you know, really what we're seeing, too, is a change in the, 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 I think, the national zeitgeist, if you will, with the Roe v. Wade decision, the Dobbs decision coming out. We've seen the generic uh, ballot come out positive for the Democrats, a huge flip in that. Um, we don't know if we're going to see that yet at the individual race, you know, race level yet, but it's, it's coming. Um, so I guess I just want to, you know, what do we do? I mean, the Democrats, as they message, and uh, I love the way you said in our message this morning as we were talking about getting ready for the show, is like how not to sound like a Democrat. I mean, um, where do you see the messaging and, and, and what's the right way to go about it, in your opinion? 
Well, first, I think there are two numbers that matter here, um, two numbers that will d determine what happens in November. Uh, in a recent poll, 51 percent of Americans said they think the Democratic Party is weak. And 54% of Americans said they think that the Republican Party is extreme. Right. One of those one of those two narratives is going <laughs> to dominate in November. If the right. argument becomes, oh, Democrats are weak, they can't whip inflation, they can't control the left wing of their party, we're dead. If it's, right. look how crazy the Republicans are, look how extreme they are on guns, on abortion, on election denial, etc., um, mm -hmm. then Democrats can't lose. So Democrats need to make sure that they are defining the terms of the debate and they are making sure they need to be making sure that what we're actually arguing about from now until November um, is extremism, corruption and chaos. Um, that's those are all places where we're going to win. I like it. And so how does that translate? Though? I mean, so when we talk about that, I mean, individual cases, I mean, um, it, it, how do we do that without being doom and gloom? How do we do it effectively to land the punch, if you will? OK, when you uh, when you make a movie, when you're writing a screenplay, what you're constantly doing is locating the audience emotionally. I know I need them to be here by the end of the movie. So how do I get them? to this place by page 25? How do I get them to this place by the midpoint of the movie? How do I get them into total despair by about page 90? And then start to build it back <laughs> up again towards the end, right? You're always yep. thinking about locating the audience emotionally. Yep. That's what Democrats need to learn how to do. What, what's shocking about politicians, and I now have been fortunate enough to meet a lot of them, is what crappy storytellers they are. Um, <laughs> right? It's just shocking to me because so much right. of, of communicating as a as a, a leader, as a legislator, is storytelling. You know, Bill Clinton had a great story. Obama had a great story. I, I hate to say it, but Trump had a story. His story right. was, I'm a businessman. I'm going to run it like a business and it's all going to be great. Right. That's a story. Right. Um, Hillary had no story. Right. If you were to ask Americans, what's her story? They would have. And by the way, this is not true, but they would have right. said, oh, her story is, yeah, my husband cheated. But I stayed because I wanted to be president, too. <laughs> that's sort of what her story looked like. Well, that doesn't inspire anybody. Which that's she didn't not, write, right? I think yeah, it does well, that, yeah, okay, yeah, but it's, that's it. Who writes your story, right? Yeah, but it's her job to write her story. There you go. Okay, so so let's start with that as a really big picture idea, that, that Democrats have to tell a story. Okay? Now, what needs to be in that story? Well, first, you have to ask yourself, why do people vote? Republican in the first place. Um, you know, if you if you talk to if you give Americans a, a test, a personality trait test, liberal brains and conservative brains are wired differently. People will liberals and conservatives will score differently on those tests. Um, we're literally not yeah. thinking in the same way yep. on a psychological level. What makes a conservative a conservative? What what unites them as a voting block is their shared fear of chaos. Right. That's underneath every ad aimed at every Republican for as long as I've been alive. It's, it's why Marjorie Taylor Greene's ads were all about her, you know, shooting at things. Because right. what she was essentially saying is that's chaos out there and I'm going to kill it for you. Right. In 1988, the Willie Horton ad said, if you vote for Michael Dukakis, a black convict on furlough is going to come murder your family. Right. Right. That's what it said. It went yep. right after that, like lizard brain fear. 
um, which was essentially Democrats are soft on crime, and that's chaos. Then after 9-11, it became Democrats are soft on terror, chaos. Democrats are for open borders. Democrats are for burning cities. Democrats want to defund the police. Democrats are socialists. It's it's always this image that we're a bunch of uh, transgender people performing eight and a half month abortions. Right. You just you can't give us power because the result will be chaos. If you give a conservative the choice between authoritarianism and what they perceive to be chaos, they'll pick authoritarianism every time Mm -hmm. they're doing it right in front of us. So what we must do as Democrats now is accurately pose ourselves as the antidote to chaos because the fact is that chaos is 30 cars backed up in a hospital parking lot because there are no ICU beds available. Chaos is people bringing AR-15s to polling places. Chaos is January 6th. Democrats are actually the representative of calm, competent, effective, muscular government. Right. That's the opposite of chaos. What do people right. really want from their government? Just take care of the big stuff. You know, COVID, yep. infrastructure, Ukraine. You guys take care of that stuff and we'll run our lives. That's a, that's the, the contract. Right. Okay. Now, the reason right. why this year is different is because for the first time ever, by 17 percentage points, Americans now believe that there are more extremists on the right than on the left. Okay. All our life, it's been the radical left. Right. Well, now you can talk about the radical right, and Americans agree with you. They yep. think the Republican Party is too extreme. Sixty percent of Americans think that Donald Trump should be charged with a crime. Mm-hmm. We're in a different yep. place now. When yes, I talk are. to candidates, I say, don't say the word Republican for the next four months. Just call them the radical right, because what you're essentially saying is to the voter, you have a choice. It's me or chaos, me or the radical right. Mm-hmm. That's the story. Yep. Okay, if we yep. tell that, because to call them the Republican Party is to create this false equivalency that doesn't exist anymore. The Republican Party of, of Eisenhower and Reagan and McCain, that's not around. That party right. was about small government, personal accountability, law and order, and hawkishness on Russia. That's, yep. The Republican Party is about none of those things today. It's literally just about owning the libs. And right. that's chaos. So you make the argument about chaos and you make yourself the, the way to end it. And then you're telling a story that uh, the conservatives and independents who lean conservative can actually hear. Yeah, uh, it makes absolute sense. And I think and, and how that transits for each district is different, of course, in each each candidate. But it is it is that I mean, you've got you know, you've got one marginal is a good example. You, on top of the, the thing about these chaos agents, too, I think. And, and I love your take on this is. As chaos agents, they don't govern, right? I mean, That's right. You you can't poke the, the the a lot of folks. We we talk about Marjorie Taylor, quite a, Taylor Greene quite a bit, but you know Marjorie Taylor Greene isn't a she's now a one term Congress member. Um, you know Gates has been in Congress, Boebert's been in Congress. We have to point to well, what have they done as Congress members? Yeah, I think I, I think before they became electeds, they could they could be chaos agents all they want, and that was their record. They were fighters, right? I always love that one. They're fighters, um, mm-hmm. but now they're a member of Congress. If you're fighting, what do you, what have you won, right? I mean, I always tell I tell a lot of folks like you know I, I had someone tell me out recently I like that person because they're a fighter. It's like yeah, but would you place your bet against a fighter who's zero and thirty? <laughs> right? right, you know it's great they're a fighter. Anybody can fight. I can walk into a bar and punch the biggest guy in the in the bar, get my ass thrown out the door. I'm still a fighter, but I'm a loser, right? 
And I think right. we have to make sure we frame these. I mean, uh, you know, we can talk about Marjorie Terrigan very easily. I'm familiar with her, of course. The fact is Marjorie Terrigan hasn't had a single piece of legislation voted upon. Um, she serves on no committees. She has no right. district offices, right? Right. So, okay. so what are, what are the, the, the legs of the chaos stool? Okay. Yeah. The legs of the chaos stool are corruption because uh, Americans believe that Republicans in Congress are far more corrupt than Democrats are. Um, you know, why is it that every single Democrat votes to cap the cost of insulin at $35 a month and Republicans vote against it? Why? Because right. they're in the pocket of big pharma. So, of course, they're going to vote against that. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's chaos. That corruption impacts your daily life. In a really profound way. Why are Republicans voting against, you know, bills to stop price gouging? Why are they voting against bills to bring baby formula in? Remember when that was the biggest issue in the history of the right. world? Oh, it's huge. Remember? Huge that's all we can yep. talk about on Twitter like for a week. days? Exactly. Okay. Well, that's chaos. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is the representative of, to me, she's a representative of every leg of the chaos stool because the rest mm-hmm. of the stool is, aside from corruption, it's fealty to Trump. And it's yeah. QAnon. And she's all three. <laughs> yeah. Um, those are all code words for chaos. If you're running against Marjorie Taylor Greene, you're talking about corruption, QAnon, and fealty to Trump. Yeah. Because um, yeah. remember, the voters that matter, the undecided independents, which are about 26% of the independent voters uh, in America right now, among that group, Trump is completely radioactive. Among that group, his numbers are garbage. Pre-Ukraine. Right. His popularity among that group was 20 percent. His disapproval was 67. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. pre-Ukraine, pre-Dobbs, pre-Uvalde and pre-January 6 hearings. Right. So right. you've got to tag her to all that stuff. And, and I think as another part of this, Billy, I mean, those great, uh, let's say I call them the fence sitters, right? The, the people aren't in the fight. I think mm-hmm. you and I, you know, in our, as we're trying to help people, you know, move forward, help the country – the, the really big thing, I mean, there's estimates of almost 77 million people who are eligible to vote didn't vote in the 2020 election, right? right. I think, I, I, you know, are, is our messaging effective to get them in the fight? I mean, I, I've had, I think uh, my, my friend Tom Nichols and I, and, uh, and I and Joe Walsh and I on Twitter kind of got into it because Joe's like, oh, these, these hearings aren't going to change any minds on the on, He's you know, wrong. MAGA. Right. And I said, well, I disagree, but I also disagree in the sense that I don't necessarily have to change MAGA minds. I have to get the people who don't realize the danger to our democracy to realize it, right? In the right. end, I'm trying to reach the independence of the centrist. Right? Even, and frankly, we have to be honest, right, Bill? We're also trying to read Democrats who have sort of checked out too, who are Democrats, but aren't participating, right? The people who are too lazy, and I don't want to say lazy, that seems cruel, but just aren't into it. I, I knocked on a door in, in Georgia recently and you know, the lady answered the door said, you know, I, I don't want to hear about this candidate. You know, we don't do politics. Like, well, that's great, man, but you know, you may not do politics, but politics does you. You know, yes, right. <laughs> you know, ask the Supreme Court. You know how that worked out for your healthcare. And so, I think a lot of ways we we do have to message that, right? How do how do you and I message effectively as storytellers to get the great the the fence sitters or the um, uh, you know, I, I joke. I think if people listen to the show, they hear me say there. You know, there's the there's the the right, the left, the independent, then there's the fuck. I don't know what I am. <laughs> you know what I mean? How do sure. we reach the fuck? How do we how do we reach the fucks? I don't know who I am. Okay, so start with the precept that all politics are aspirational. Yeah. Okay. Um, people want things, right? Um, and I would argue that even many of the people who voted for Trump 
were aspirational. That mm-hmm. it wasn't all about racism and hatred. Um, some of it, they, there was something they wanted. And it's important to recognize and respect the aspirations of people, even people who voted for someone as, you know, horrible and calamitous as Trump. Here's what I think it is. I think that part of the, the story that Democrats need to be telling is now the opposite of chaos, which is community. Okay. In all the polling that I'm seeing, Americans are craving community. And so what I'm encouraging, you know, leaders and candidates to say is, I want you to get your neighbors back. I want you to have community again. I think you've been told for six years that you have to hate anybody who disagrees with your politics. And I think you're exhausted. I want you to get back to a place where you're thinking about bake sales and little leagues and looking after each other's kids. I want you to get back to the place where you know that if you have a flat tire and you're on the side of the road, that a neighbor's going to pull over and help you without first checking to see if your bumper sticker matches his. There you go. But if you want to get your neighbors back, you got to have your neighbors back. You have to start trusting again. You have to lower your guard. You have to turn the volume down. You have to start believing again. And if we do that, we're going to save our country. I think that's a really powerful message. It, it, uh, it empowers the person you're talking to. It gives them some skin in the game, some personal accountability. And I believe personally that the candidate who can talk about community in an unwoke way is the next great leader of America. Yeah, I love it. And that, that's funny you said, because that is a con- that's literally a conversation that I've had with not just candidates, but, but, you know, civilians, voters who say, you know, I miss being able to just talk to a neighbor and not be uncomfortable. I mean, I see it myself right. this weekend. This weekend I went out to a town, just charming little town here in Missouri in the outer, uh, the next county over. And as I, as I pulled into town, the, the first house I came across on my way to the park where I was going to hike uh, had a giant banner on the front saying, fuck Joe Biden. And then, and then this, the subtest was, fuck you for voting for him. I'm like, oh, hmm, I feel welcome. Uh, <laughs> you know? right. And so, yeah, this is literally where we are, where we're wearing our politics on our front porch uh, more so than ever. And, and I do hear many people lamenting the idea, the, the day we could just talk to each other, where politics wasn't actually a topic, right? I mean, it sounds, it sounds funny to say that, but you know, I, I don't remember talking about politics. I was a soldier for most of my career. And... Uh, you're right. It, it is community. It's that sense of community that knowing that I don't have to worry about what somebody's politics is. Um, it's a really, it's a really good message. Now you said some so, so, so Democrats now need to help people get there. Yes. And the way that we help them get there is by understanding the psychology behind why that guy is flying that flag. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that the job is to win him back. It's not. I think 30% of this country has always been crazy. I don't think that math has ever changed. Go back and look at what people were writing and saying before the, uh, sure. before the, before the civil war. I mean, 30% of this country was totally batshit crazy. Yeah. Um, and by the way, the day that Richard Nixon left office, his approval was still at 29%. Like there's some people you're just never going to reach. And that's, right. that's fine. It's absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, what matters is, you know, the big middle. The votes are in the big middle. And that's where Democrats need to go. So 
that means that we need to, in terms of messaging, make sure that people understand that the Democratic Party and the and the left are not the same thing, that the yeah. left is part of our party. It's a big tent, um, but the left does not speak for us. Um, and that there are times where the left has excesses that we need to call out and say that's ridiculous. Um, because, like, for example, if the Board of Education, like it did a year ago in San Francisco, decides it's not going to name schools after Abraham Lincoln anymore because he's not woke enough. Yeah. Every Democrat in America should have been in front of a microphone that day saying, that is fucking insane. That <laughs> does not speak for me. And it yep. doesn't speak for my party. By yep. the way, three members of that board were voted out of office within a year. Um, but my point is, if we're not standing up to that, that sort of empty, hysterical wokeism, then of course the country's going to think we're chaos. Yeah. Why wouldn't they think we're chaos? Yeah, and you see so, this... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I saw this recently, too, in, in, in the debates about Dobbs. Uh, I was on a call, a candidate here arranged a call with the, the, pro, the, the pro-choice leaders um, and, and some of the very, you know, very passionate ones. And the two big talking points they wanted us to focus on, um, which is fascinating, was they wanted, they wanted one, us not to say we were, if we were supporting them, they didn't want to say pro-choice, wanted to say pro-abortion. They really wanted us to say pro-abortion. And no, the second that's thing was ridiculous. Yeah, I, and then the second one was, you know, I really want us to not say it's a women's health care issue. You need to say it's persons who can get pregnant because we're being no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm about to throw my phone across the room. I know. I, okay. I, my God, Billy, if I hadn't had, thank God it was a Zoom. I had my camera off because if I'd had my camera on, I would have seen. They would have seen my double face palm. Um, okay. That's listen. a perfect example of what you're talking about, right? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Yep. Like, okay. Stop it. Stop it. We cannot tell Americans not to say pregnant women. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. Because then we are locked in a debate where we are on our side of the 50, to use football terms. All of a sudden, we have to start defending something that we don't really believe. Right. It's it's not a pregnant person. It's a pregnant woman. Okay. If you, by the way, are a man in a woman's body and you're pregnant and you want to call yourself a pregnant person, fine. Great. Nobody's going to stop you. But no member of Congress should be using that language any more than they should be using the term chest feeding. It's insane. It makes (laughs) us sound stupid. It makes us laughable. And we're not. Remember that while we're, you know, tripping over ourselves to prove how woke we are, we're losing elections all over America. And with it, we're going to lose our democracy. So do we want to win or do we we want to be right? That's not a tough call for me. And this is why you and I get along so well. Exactly the conversation. And and if regular listeners of the show know, they've heard the story multiple times, but I always tell because it's a great story. But, you know, I, I, I was relatively new to politics and I joined the Lincoln Project two years ago. And, and I remember my, and I had done veterans advocacy and veterans advocacy is about policies and positions and that sort of thing. And I remember the first time I had a call after joining the Lincoln Project as a senior advisor for veterans affairs, I got on there with uh, Rick Wilson, a couple others said, Hey, you know, since we're getting organized, you know, what are our biggest policy points? What are the things we want to push? And Wilson, you know, lifelong Republican commercial maker and yeah, ad man and everything else says, Oh, Fred, 
no, you don't understand. We don't, we don't do policy. We do winning and losing. And and the point being, and it's such a decidedly different approach to elections and and the approach to these things than the democratic approach, which is many in our, many in our side would like to, they would like to lose with their policies intact uh, as opposed to just winning elections. Because the fact is when you lose an election, you don't get to pass your policies. Right. And it seemed correct. In a lot of ways, the Republicans have always been laser focused on winning elections and and whatever it takes to win an election. Um, it, you know, okay, I, so, I so let me go a little, de- let me go a little deeper dive on that. Please do. Okay. Okay. So, uh, there were 6.2 million Americans who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. Okay. That, they're called flip voters. Right. 1.3 million of them were in three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, 1.3 million in those three states, which is why the blue wall crumbled. Okay. Right. So somebody did a deep dive study. Who are those 1.3 million people and what's their story? Here's what they found out about those 1.3 million flip voters in those three states. On average, they work two and a half jobs. On average, they commute three hours a day. And on average, they think about politics four minutes per week. Per week. Okay. Yeah. So you go up to that guy. He's in Grand Rapids. Okay. He's in Allentown. He's working two and a half jobs. He's commuting three hours a day. He's thinking about politics four minutes per week. Okay. I guarantee, I guarantee you he's taking his medication every other day to make 30 pills last 60 days. He's got a kid with special needs. And if he's lucky, he's got a mom in a nursing home. Okay. You go up to that guy and you say, you've got white privilege and I don't like your pronouns. (laughs) He's going to tell you to go screw yourself because it's got nothing to do with his life. Right. Nothing to do with his life. And by the way, I'm the most liberal guy you're going to talk to all day. I'm just <laughs> talking now about the pragmatics of political reality, how to reach right. that person. OK, what right. Democrats tend to do is that we insist that people celebrate things they have just learned how to tolerate. <laughs> I'm writing that down. OK, like that guy, if you were to ask him about um gay rights he'd say yeah whatever i know a gay guy it's not a big deal but don't tell me if i don't march in a parade that i'm homophobic right yeah yeah of course i work with two black guys not a big deal but don't tell me if i don't like critical race theory that i'm a racist Hmm. right don't we cannot ask people to celebrate things they've just learned how to tolerate and instead, yep. in the Democratic Party, we say, wait a minute, if you're not in the parade, of course you're a homophobe and you're canceled. It's over. What do you mean you like Abraham Lincoln? You're done. OK, so we leave everybody out. Now, yep. when you do a poll uh, of Americans on what it is that they value, freedom is number one and it's not close. Freedom outpulsed justice as a value in America by 22 points, okay, which will come as no shock to anybody who's black, right? Because if you're the black community, you're saying, hey, justice, justice, and white people are saying, yeah, justice, it's, it's important. But what I really want is the freedom to say stupid shit if I need to, <laughs> okay? But what's critical about that is – and by the way, if you need an example of it, look at guns, right? The genius of the gun right. lobby was it took what should have been a safety issue, made it a freedom issue. And at that point, you could walk into Sandy Hook and shoot 20 kids and the conversation really didn't change. Right. 
right? right? Okay. Once masks and vaccines stopped being a health issue and started being a freedom issue, that's when everything got weird. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what's critical about that is that um, by 30 percentage points, Americans believe that Democrats are more likely to restrict their freedoms than Republicans are. They think we're here to take freedoms away. Why? Because we say shit like, no, you have to say pregnant person now. Right. Right? Yep. They don't want to be told how to talk. These are grownups. Right? Yep. I think think that gets to it so much. Go ahead. So Democrats need to start speaking in the language of freedom. It's, It's like, even if you're talking about infrastructure, it's, hey, that rural broadband is going to free you to connect to the global economy. You let us go fix that bridge, it's going to free you to get to your mom in that nursing home safely. Right? We just don't talk that way. Right. But we have to because it's the thing that Americans care about most. And it's, again, it's not close. No, and and we go right to our policies. I I was was having a conversation with a a Senate candidate recently, and, and, and I let him talk quite a bit. And, and he always got right to, uh, the micro policy. Like, you know what I mean? He's right. Like, this sure. specific, you know, and, and I'm like, that's great, man. But, you know, if you look at your opponents, you know, the, here in Missouri, they're, they're kicking down doors and shooting shit. <laughs> yeah. For, right. And you nail it for freedom. Oh, freedom. You know, and, and you're like, well, I want this specific healthcare policy that does, is going to take care of these 10% of people. Like, you, you got to start telling a larger story. People, people don't think that way. You know, I took a class at uh, grad school from Mark McKinnon, uh, who uh-huh. is on the, on, you know, on the circus now, Showtime. And Mark's a famous ad maker, Republican ad maker as well, uh, for many years. And he actually did a whole course on storytelling. And, and, and it gets, it, it goes right back. Storytelling hasn't changed since caveman times, right, Billy? I mean, it's, right. you nailed it earlier in their conversation, right? There's the arc, there's the hero, there's an obstacle overcome. And, and you're right. We too often, I think, uh, our, our colleagues on the left, especially go right into, well, this is a policy point. And, and, and not, They've got to tell the arc of the story from what we're trying to overcome as a nation and how they as a candidate or they as a party or they as a policy will overcome that obstacle for the people are trying to help uh, instead of the, the, well, we've helped over 10,000 specific people. Great, but I'm not one of the 10,000, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the things I struggle with with a lot of the, the political, uh, the politicians I work with is like, get out of your own head as far as your pet, your pet policies and tell the larger story of what you're going to bring to your, your constituents and how you're going to make a difference in that, that, that freedom, if you will. Right. In other words, and a, a brilliant politician said this to me once, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. <laughs> yeah. And yep. that's it. That's yeah. everything, right? That's, yeah. that's storytelling. You know, someone very smart once did a study of all the ridiculous shit that Trump said in 2016. They actually did a breakdown while he was running, of all the uh, campaign lines and which were the most impactful. Mm -hmm. And the single most impactful line he used in that entire campaign, and it was not close, was, I will be your voice. That one tested off the charts. I mean, it just spiked like crazy the second he said it. Well, what does that tell us about what the electorate wants? Right? I will be your voice. Okay. Yep. That tells me that they felt unseen and they felt unheard by their government. And along comes this guy who says, I see you. I hear you. Now, he was lying through his teeth. But what's that got to do with anything? Yep. Right? Yep. Um, That moved people. 
that spoke to people in a way that that really, really mattered. I will be your voice. Okay. So now imagine if Democrats say that um, and actually mean it. Because that's what we do. We are everybody's voice. That's that's yeah. what it is to be a Democrat, right? Yeah. We're working yeah. for working people. That's that's the whole that that is the entire plan of the party. It's our it's our reason to be. Yeah. So why yeah. can't we be out there saying I will be your voice? Well, I think I think effective ones have, and I think and that's where we that's where we have had our successes is is those who will do that. And you see the leaders, the younger leaders. Now we are seeing a generational shift, right? Uh, I, I do see a lot more of that with the, the younger voices we're seeing coming out of the party, the, the seven Boltons, the, the Ruben Gallegos, for example. They are, mm-hmm. they, they, they seem to understand the, the difference in a, a sort of a generational change in how we message and, and market the party, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I know them both and I love them both. Um, yep. You know, they're, they're the hope. There are a bunch of them. There are a bunch of Democrats that are in the House and the Senate right now that I think are just spectacular, spectacular leaders, great legislators, and absolutely the voice of the party and the, and the future of the party. And, and you know, in terms of like the depth of our bench, we're going to be fine, but we yeah. have to win now. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we're on a timeline. Okay, the midterms are coming. It could be a disaster. We, we know that our Republicans... I don't believe that it will be. I really yeah. don't believe that it will be. And I've been saying this for a year, and everyone around me keeps telling me how crazy I am. But I, I think I can defend the argument because um, if you think about uh, what it's going to take for Democrats to get their message across, the first... And biggest component that we didn't have in 2020 is the thing that we do better than everybody else, which is we knock on doors. Mm -hmm. That's the strength of every Democrat that I know. When they knock on a door and look someone in the eye and ask for their vote, that's that's where we are at our most effective. And we couldn't do it in 2020 because of the, Mm -hmm. the pandemic. Well, now we're doing it. I don't think it's a coincidence that things are working better. Um, the what happened on Dobbs is absolutely massive. Um, and then you have the last component, which I really didn't think would be a needle mover, but truly is a needle mover, which is the January 6th hearings. Like yeah. if you see the polling, man, I was really skeptical that anyone in America would be watching and then anyone in America would care. And I was dead wrong because it's it's literally moving the needle. Um, and it's not coincidentally, it's telling a story. Right. And let me, and let me segue into that. I mean, from uh, on the January 6th hearings, we've got seven now. Um, mm-hmm. and one of the things I've been saying a lot is what I'm seeing is a very effective storytelling approach. And I've had a chance to talk to, you know, a few lawyers. I've had Glenn Kirshner on here and, and a couple others. And we've talked about the legal aspects of it. But one thing I keep coming back to is what I'm seeing is a very smartly laid out story arc. Um, that is telling the pieces of the puzzle in a very effective way. I mean, how do you, do you see a similar way as, 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 I mean, you spent your whole career writing stories and, and, and getting them onto film. How are you seeing this? Are, are you seeing that angle as the most effective means? Yeah. Now, let me say for the record, I would have told it in a different way. Okay. Um, and I, and I probably would have been wrong. Um, <clears throat> I believed that the first thing they needed to do in the very first hearing 
was just talk about how many people at that uh, riot were armed. I would have done just two hours on laying out the facts of how many guns there were, how many AR-15s there were, how many of, of all stripes of weapons. There's one guy named Lonnie Leroy Kaufman who parked two blocks from the Capitol that day. Go look up what he had in the back of his truck. Oh, yeah. That truck it's extraordinary. Yeah, I know. It was nuts, yeah. Right? Molotov yeah, the, cocktails the, everything else. Yeah. 11 Molotov cocktails and two yep. submachine guns. And, and he had a crossbow with bolts and he had machetes. He was two blocks from the fucking Capitol. So anyway, I would have started with let's let's now completely destroy the myth that this was not an armed uh, group of rioters. Right. Okay. I would not have used the word insurrection. I would have talked about it as a crime. Um, I would not have used the word insurrection until much later in the proceedings. I would have literally just said, here are the crimes that were committed on that day. Because the fact is, I don't think most Americans can get their head around what a coup is, but right. everybody knows what a workplace lockdown is. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that if you're in your office and there are armed people coming down the hall and you've got to barricade your front door, that's bad. Everybody knows that assault and battery is bad. Everybody knows that assaulting a police officer is bad. Five dead police officers as a result of this day. Yeah. Right. Everybody knows that trespassing is bad, you know, defacing public property, all that stuff. So I would have started there and built my case slowly that it was a crime first, gotten everybody on board there, gotten the buy-in, okay, crimes were committed and it was armed and it was dangerous. And then I would have led to the conspiracy. They did it the other way, which was much more compelling television. It was Donald Trump decided to overturn the government. And now they've been proving it for seven episodes. (laughs) Um, they must be right because they're moving the needle and maybe my way wouldn't have. Uh, But what's important is that they're both just stories, right? Right. They're truthful, but they're just, they're, they are narratives. And clearly the people on that committee understood that you needed to have a narrative. So what they did, um, which is a much more prosecutorial style of storytelling. That's a Glenn Kirshner (laughs) They they started with a bad guy. Right. And they said, everything we're going to tell you from this point forward is to prove the point that he's the bad guy. Yep. Right. So they weren't trying to build a case that the Republican Party itself needs to be blown up. They were trying to prove the case that the former president of the United States tried to overturn the government. And every piece of evidence has been in support of that narrative. Right. Right. So this goes back to a, a storytelling rule, too. Do you know how to do uh, a sculpture of an elephant? No. You start. OK, you start with a block of granite and you chisel away everything that's not an elephant. <laughs> right. There's no other way to do it. Yeah. Right. OK. So what they decided was they looked at all the information having to do with January 6th and they said, OK, what's our elephant? Coincidentally, what's our elephant? What, in other words, what's the story we're telling? And they decided the story we're telling is Donald Trump broke the law to try to keep himself in political power. So everything that wasn't that got chipped away. Yeah. And didn't become part of the story. Yeah. And so, and they've stayed, and they've stayed very, very true to that narrative intent. And it's working. It's absolutely taking hold. 
And that's one thing Glenn said. You know, Glenn said that the key is that he says, you know, when you do these big cases when he was a federal prosecutor, you know, you have such a volume of evidence that the danger is you over-prosecute, they call it, where you're you trying right. to present all that evidence, right? And, and that's what I've been, well, I want to enjoy, enjoy seems like the weird term, but what I've found interesting and a very powerful yeah. telling, you know, it's good stuff, is, was, for example, in the Georgia, the, 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 you know, they started with Raffensperger, then with Miss Ruby, right? Uh, and, 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 and the same thing we saw yesterday, they, 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 they're telling the story through the small, the, the thread that goes through with Cassidy Hutchinson was a, another great example. She was one player, but by running her story out and focusing on her pieces and her exposure, these pieces of the puzzle, it tells the larger story. They don't need to over-prosecute the case. I think they're doing a very effective job of providing a larger picture because what happened in Georgia also happened in two or three other states. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it has been a very, I think prosecutor is the perfect terms and that's exactly how Glenn presented it as well is it, they're making the legal case. They're, they're, they're making sure DOJ sees how this should be prosecuted. They're doing it on a, a national audience live. Right. So if, if we circle back to where we started, yeah, <clears throat> the democratic party essentially needs to tell a story in the next five months. Okay. And if you'll forgive the alliteration, um, the story is that we are about community, not chaos. We are about competence, not corruption. We are about votes, not violence. Laws, not lies. Books, not bans. Heart, not hate. Right? Those are really simple but emotional ideas. And you tell that story, you can't lose. You can't lose. Yep. I agree. I think you're absolutely right. And, and, and how that changes the law is, and, and you're right, against the chaos agents. Well, I highlight the chaos agents and, and making sure that we, we understand that we need government. I think, I do think there is a move, people are tired of the ridiculousness. They're tired of having, um, I don't know what you call them, caricatures, if you will, and, uh, performance artists. Instead of actual legislation being passed or, or work of the people being done, I hope so at least. I mean, maybe I'm just an optimist. Um, I think optimism is necessary. I don't think it's a psychological condition at all. Um, <laughs> no, I mean it. I mean, I know. Look, I tell you, if you're if you really care about democracy, um, how did you make it through four years of Trump without optimism? Right. Right. How how did you get up in the morning and say? I'm going to go do my job without thinking this, this is going to be okay. We're going to find our way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Without that, you got nothing. Yeah. And that's where we are. And, and, you know, we, it, it's tough. I mean, you, you get it. There are, there are headwinds. We've got economic headwinds right now. We've got international headwinds. We've got, um, obviously the chaos continues. Um, you know, I, I study quite a bit in my work with the beer hall project, you know, the beer hall push and what followed that. And, and I think a lot of us do feel, um, the heat on our neck, uh, of, of what could happen, you know, and knowing history, knowing how Hitler used the beer hall push, his failed beer hall push, and used the publicity and his actual trial for the beer hall push to increase his following, increase his power, uh, That's to right. the point where he came out more powerful than he went in. A lot of us, I mean, I, I speak for myself only, have, have feel the heat, right? And so I, I know I, I am, um, anxious about the midterm. I'm anxious about 2024 because I do know historically, I've studied historically. And then as a soldier, I've fought in, in countries with, uh, you know, strong men. I fought against Saddam Hussein's uh, army and then, and then the aftermath of his departure. Um, 
you know, I know intimately how these things go. I sat in the dirt houses and the mud brick homes in Iraq and heard the stories of torture, heard the stories of families disappearing. I never forget uh, my, my friend, Dr. Muhammad. I remember when we first started having bombs go off on Highway 1, the, the road from Baghdad to Mosul, where I, my, my air of operations straddled the highway. And we started getting the bombs planted. Now, this is a major highway. You, you can't dig a hole and put in a bomb without someone seeing as they drive by. And I said to Dr. Muhammad those early days, I said, I just don't get it, Dr. Muhammad. How are, how are Iraqis seeing this and not reporting or not, not saying them? He said, let me explain something to you about life under Saddam, under, you know, under a dictator. He goes, you, you survive by not seeing. You right. survive by not seeing when the black vehicles pulled up in the house next door and kidnapped the entire family in the middle of the night. You just didn't see it. And and having those stories and the, and the fact that I remember them almost like yesterday, some 18 years later, that I have a great fear for our country, right? I have fear for the Trumps. I have fear for people like even Ron DeSantis and his the way he punishes people who speak out against him, the way people are fired from their jobs. It's a very small line to the next step in authoritarianism, you know? And so, so yeah, I do I, – I admit freely that I have probably a – a higher level of anxiousness about where we are as a country. And um, while I do remain hopeful, I, I do, in the flip side of that, hold our friends in the Democratic Party accountable heavier for not fighting better, right? I mean, it, it, does that make sense? I mean, of course, it how, do we, how do we hold them accountable? Because again, the, Hitler would not have been deposed if we hadn't built our allies, built our army, invaded the country, you know, worked with people we didn't want to work with. I, I, I guarantee FDR did not want to sit next to Stalin. Um, you know, and yet here yeah, go. okay, but th- you know? uh, this is this is my point, okay? Yep. FDR said, okay, I, I got to get rid of the biggest murderer in the world. And to do it, I'm going to have to befriend the second biggest murderer in the world. And I'm going to go do that. Okay? Yep. That's what I'm talking about. That's political reality. Okay. So if we as a party can't embrace that, we're doomed. Yeah. In other words, if we as a party are saying, no, 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 wait a minute. What what do you mean you like Abraham Lincoln? You're not woken up for me. You can't be in my party. Then we're going to lose and we're going to deserve to. I agree. I know you got a hard out. I kept you over it, by the way. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Your your last thought. I I love talking about this stuff. (laughs) I know. Um, what would be my last thought? Um, I guess my last thought would be going back to that basic idea of community versus chaos. I know I'm repeating myself, but politics requires some repetition. If we are the party of community, if we are the party of bringing people back together, and if we really mean it, if we stop the polarization, if we actually – remember – uh, uh, Americans who became Confederates and fought a war against Americans were welcomed back into the Union. Okay? Yeah. We got to find a way to welcome our neighbors back. The, that independent voter who lost his mind in 2016 and voted for Trump, yeah, I might be mad at that guy forever. I think he put this country through something horrible. But my God, if that guy's willing to come back and help me defend my democracy now, I'm an idiot if I hold on to my anger. And that's where that optimism actually becomes a survival technique. 
We have to hold on to it. We have to hold on to the idea that people can learn and grow and get better and come around. We cannot hold on. As, as Lincoln said, as our, as our case is new, we must think anew and act anew. I love it. That's where that, we are. And that's where we are. And I think you're absolutely right. I think, and that means that we go easy on our allies. You know, we go, we, 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 we may have uncomfortable partners. Uh, you know, Liz Cheney, I don't agree on a single policy point that Liz Cheney is probably ever. Who cares? <laughs> ever. Who cares? But you know what? I, I agree exactly. with her on the right big now, thing, she, which is, right, I agree with her on the big thing, which is that democracy is important. Our democracy, our constitution, our democracy matters. We can, I mean, I, I joke about it all the time. I cannot wait to argue about tax policy again. Uh, instead Sounds of, great. Back Sign me up. Yeah, there you go. Well, where can we find you online? But for those who don't know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Said, oh, Billy Ray, not that Billy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 at Billy Ray five two two nine. All right, good. And you're that and same thing. Man, I cannot thank you enough for a short term. I know I called you the last minute to join, join us. I, I know you had a hard out. I appreciate the time you gave us. Um, My always fascinating, and and uh, I look forward to having you again. As always, you guys can find me at at fp wellman on Twitter and everywhere else. Uh, we'll be back again. I'm, I'm going to try to go to two days, two a week show. You'll probably be back again on Friday. We'll answer some of your calls. I know we couldn't take calls today. I apologize, uh, but we'll keep on going. Billy, thank you so much. Listeners, thank you so much for joining and us. And thank you for and your service, time. Fred. Oh, that's very kind of you. I, I, I always say I got as much as I gave. I, I got an education. I got to see the world. Got blown up. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much. You guys have a see great day with that. Have a great day, and we are out. 